Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The intersection of art and technology is on view in an exhibition at Reeves House Visual Arts Center in Woodstock. San Francisco artist Jim Campbell is known for his LED light works and a pivotal figure in the use of computer technology as an artistic medium. He joins us with the director and curator, Nicole Lample, to discuss the exhibition Coded Realities. And we'll hear more about art and technology when City Light senior producer Kim Drobe sits down with W.A.B.E. tech reporter Emil Moffat to discuss art and NFTs. What's an NFT? Stay with us to learn about this trend later in the hour. First, in Horizon Theater's production of The Light, an unexpected marriage proposal goes awry. Rashad and Genesis should be celebrating this new chapter in their lives, but things begin to unravel when the truth is revealed. Marguerite Hanna is Horizon's associate artistic producer and directs this play. She joins me now via Zoom along with actor Cynthia D. Barker, who portrays Genesis. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Marguerite, would you give us an overview of the play? It is a real-time ride. Uh, frequently, we, we go to theater that one scene is one day, then we transition to the past, we transition to the future. This is real time. The door opens, Genesis arrives home from work. And when the show ends, we have sat with this couple for the next maybe hour and 15 minutes of their life. So there is this urgency and realness that we don't often get to see in theater. I think that is amongst all the other exciting things about the show, 
one of the things that is a real surprise. It makes audiences lean in because when you see real time, you also are able to see your own life, how things happen in your own life. Mm. Cynthia, you portray Genesis, the elementary school teacher who is dating actor Enoch King's character, Rashad. How did you work with Enoch offstage in order to portray this loving but complicated relationship with him on stage? Enoch is my best friend. We have been friends for 14 years. And if I'm honest, I feel like the past 14 years of our friendship, of growing and getting to know each other has just built the intimacy and the trust that is needed to play Rashad in Genesis. So when we got to the play, we we already knew each other really, really well. (laughs) You know, there was already a, um, a deep comfort level and then not just as friends, but we've worked together several times played opposite each other. His character is often in love with my character and my character shuns him. This is the first time where I actually reciprocate our love on stage. Oh, finally requited <laughs> love of finally. your characters. <laughs> yeah, but but so some of the things that you see in the people who know us, know us, that that chemistry is is not just because of two good actors. That chemistry is 14 years of, of friendship. Interesting. Now, your character, Genesis, faces issues of racial discrimination and gender bias, and she tries to relay this unique plight of being black and female to her boyfriend, Rashad. How do you relate to this character's hardships? Oh, Lois. Oh, man. So, as you know, in 2020, even before COVID started to shut things down, the Atlanta theater community had a dinner to discuss the racial disparities that were taking place in our community. And that idea came from me doing Decatur dinners and I called Lee. And so those were hard conversations, right? Talking about race. And then we had the town hall later in that summer and allowing artists of color to address the artistic leadership at white led institutions. Those were hard, hard conversations because we love these people and we love each other, but we had to tell each other the, each other the truth. But what I have found <laughs> is the hardest conversation for me to have. So when I'm standing with black men and we are discussing race, I have my ally standing by my side and we are against the same thing, speaking out against the same thing. But then when I turn to my brother who was my ally and tell him how I feel about being a woman, those conversations present more challenges. I am being very careful with this because that's how sensitive it makes me. I have had really, really hard sometimes arguments with with people that are still my dear friends. And I love that we we have to work really hard at listening because like, like Genesis says, there is a privilege to being a man that, oh, forgive me brothers when y'all hear this, that I find that black men don't often see that they have a privilege because of how they are victimized in society by other factors, which is true. But as Genesis said, it does not mean that you don't have privilege in relation to black women. There's that power dynamic. It's, It's so complex and so layered. This play was inspired by the sexual assault allegations against Nate Parker. 
for those who may not be familiar with that controversy, would you tell the backstory? Yes, of course. I believe it was 2016 and Nate Parker's film was coming out. And I wish I could remember the name of it right now. The Birth of a Nation. Yes. And everybody, there was award buzz, Oscar buzz. It was great. You know, he wrote it, produced it with a, a, a college friend of his. And then it came out that some years prior, I don't know dates, he and his college roommate or friend had been accused of rape. And to my understanding, Loy Webb, our playwright, loved Nate Parker and loved his work. And she found herself really conflicted about what to do with those allegations and also her love for this man and his work. And I think we all find ourselves in, in, in those situations where we know people from their work and the things that they do in the world and the things that they do for the community. And then we hear things about who they might be as a person. And then you go, well, what? You did this really, really great thing. But I've also heard that you may have done this really, really terrible thing. So what do I do with those great things? What do I do with you? I think that is the this kernel that is so beautifully woven into this play is that reality of what if I am the person that knows more than the average person about someone. And then I have my mate who is a man who only knows the outward personification of this person, the the what everyone knows, and he is actually correct in in trying to say well well i'm not ready to make this leap with you because of what i know and i think that is the essence of this play it is that if you know something and you've already you're already living in it and someone else trusts you but they've been living in a different reality and that time that's why i get back to the show being in real time it is that processing time of how do I get on board with what I am just hearing that is shattering in this moment, what I've always believed to be true. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with director Marguerite Hanna and actor Cynthia D. Barker about the light, the current production on stage at Horizon Theater. How does Enoch's character respond to Genesis's objection to going to Kashif's concert? Would you set us up for that? Scene? This is Marguerite. I'm, I'm going to jump in here. There's a place with this play that you don't want to give it all away. Okay. Because <laughs> if that's a spoiler, then yeah, you don't want to give it all away because yeah. it, it's how the it's how the show turns on a dime. But what I want to say to your audience, because I don't want your audience to believe that the ride of the play is all what we've been talking about, because. Mm -hmm. What is so wonderfully written by Loy is for the first two thirds of the play, I believe, you want to be part of that couple. Mm -hmm. It is this loving ride that they are, you can tell they love each other, they're laughing, they're joking, they're kidding with each other. This is on track to be one of the best days of their life. 
and you are bought into that a hundred percent and you're just like oh wow <laughs> he's great she's great they're the smartest <laughs> coolest couple i ever met until they don't understand each other in that moment until he can't hear fast enough to understand what she is trying to say to him. And I bring this up because I have gotten a lot of responses from men who love the play because I think that the play, no, I know that the play gives men and women an opportunity to see how we derail ourselves, you know, because like I said, he's such a great guy up until the point that he can't hear that guys are like, yes, yes, I can do that. Yes, I can be that. Yeah. Oh, uh oh. Um, yeah, I think that's very important to know. Very important to know. It is very important to know. I want to just want to say that again, the, the character that Enoch plays Rashad is a really, really, really good guy. And that's one of my favorite things about about the show. There's a stage direction at the beginning of the script, which audiences don't see. When the, the show opens, you see him in preparation for the engagement. But in the script, it says that this is a moment that he's been waiting for after much disappointment and heartbreak. And so often you see situations where the men are proposing because she wants it or you know there's some sort of ultimatum or there's some sort of pressure and that is not the case with Rashad marriage is his dream um, and it's really 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 beautiful to to watch so clearly the playwright Loy Webb has created very nuanced situations and layers for her characters the me too movement does play a role, not only with Nate Parker's controversy, but I read that The Light was released shortly after the Supreme Court hearings on Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, in which he was accused of sexual assault by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. Has this play been adapted for Horizon Stage to a address those contemporary issues? Well, it's in the script. It is in the script. It's in the script. I'm glad you brought that up. The other thing that I've been hearing from audiences after the show is they don't often get to see shows that are this current, even though the, the Kavanaugh situation was 2018, we're still having these conversations. I, talked, I, I saw someone last night after the show and they were just so I'm pleased that in this is this is what they said is I don't often see black people on stage outside of a period piece. I don't see to, you know, black people dealing with things that we are talking about today. So there was really no adaptation necessary, you know, you know, I'd also like to say, and this was a surprise resonance because we didn't know we would be presenting it at this time, but working on it. I started hearing elements of the Supreme Court hearings for Judge Ketanji ah. Jackson because of how this black woman is being bombarded with people not listening to her and not believing her and questioning who she is when she's standing with integrity. And so I think that the show is so current that 
it embraces a lot of reality on on these subjects. You know, it, it is not a one issue story. It is a current story that people see themselves in in a lot of ways. And uh, I know April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So do you think this show is also serving as a platform for bringing greater awareness to a horrific issue? I will say what several women that I know have said to me after the show. I'm a little older than Cynthia. And these are, these are dear friends of mine, been knowing them for years, and they will just whisper in my ear, oh, that's my story too. Mm-hmm. And then they just, you know, because what, what the show also shows is, is a woman who has continued to live her life. It is not the story of someone who's playing the victim. It is the story of someone who has collided with her past on an unexpected day. So, you know, like I said, they're whispering, thank you, that I've been there. And then they keep on going because basically it's like, I'm a survivor, I live, I am successful like Genesis, but that's the backstory that I've walked with most of my life. So I think that in a different way than what we may usually expect, of a Me Too story. This is a look into the survivors and who they are story. In an interview about the light, the playwright, Lawyer Webb said, I write to point toward hope. I want my work to be a neon sign in the darkness, this way out, this way to hope. How does she accomplish that in this play? I think Loy takes us, as Marguerite said, on this real-time journey where you watch these two people who appear to really know themselves, to know each other, to be making plans for their future, and then it gets derailed. But what you also see is two people who are listening in love and who through really, really, really challenging conversations that are both disturbing to them and, and, and to the, you know, their, the foundation of their relationship, but that they are still open to having this conversation. And I think that that is something that we can all benefit from. For the last couple of years, we have had um, a global pandemic and, and racial reckonings. And even now, you know, the, with, with what happened at, at the Oscars recently, there are just so many different opinions out there and thoughts about how we should be and how we should do things and how we should talk and when you should do it. And I think that the light is a pathway, as, as Loy said, to teaching us how to have conversations in grace and love, how to be present and how to hold space for other people even and especially when we disagree. Marguerite Hanna, Associate Artistic Producer of Horizon Theater and Director of The Light with actor Cynthia D. Barker. The play runs through April 17th at Horizon Theater in Little Five Points. In a moment, 
we'll hear how Reeves House Visual Arts Centre is highlighting art and technology with their exhibition, Coded Realities. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Technology is such a vital part of our lives. It's difficult to believe that the World Wide Web became widely available, publicly available, just 29 years ago. A new exhibition at the Reeves House Coded Realities, Art and Technology, examines how the machines we create serve as mirrors that magnify our desires and amplify our perceptions. The show features established and emerging artists who use technology to create installations and artwork, and joining me now via Zoom to talk more about the exhibition are Nicole Lample, Director Curator at Reeves House Visual Arts Center, and the prominent multidisciplinary artist Jim Campbell. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's a pleasure to be here. Happy to be here. Nicole. How has technology been changing and influencing the art world? Well, I think it's been slowly being incorporated into artwork for a long time. I mean, I know Jim and Alan Rath have been working with technology probably since since the 80s. So I think the way it's been changing the art world is, I think, in terms of what mediums people are using, they're able to really expand their repertoire and not just use, you know, paint and canvas. They're using LED lights or augmented reality or, you know, robotics. You can kind of go in all different directions with it. But I think it's definitely changed the way we view art as well as the way that artists approach their work using technology either as their medium or as their subject matter in certain instances as well. Jim, you have this pristine background, having studied math and engineering at MIT, What led you to create artwork from computer technology? That was really a 25-year process. I I came out of MIT with a degree in engineering, and I moved to Silicon Valley. 
And I knew pretty quickly, actually, I knew while I was still in school that I was interested in balance in my life. And so over a, really a 30-year period, I went from being a full-time engineer to finally 30 years later, a full-time artist. It started out as about balance and I actually enjoy both engineering and art that kind of uses different parts of my brain. Oh, yes. You began with filmmaking. Why did you switch from filmmaking to engineering these electronic and LED sculptures? I started out interested in film and photography, and I kind of realized that <laughs> it wasn't for me. I was more interested in building things as part of you know, my end product, as part of my artwork. And I realized that being a, a nerd, that I didn't have the personality of a, of a director in terms of filmmaking. And so I chose to combine my kind of background in uh, images, being filmmaking and photography, with my engineering. And I started bringing those two things together in unique ways. Would you please describe your Women's March installation? Yes, I went to the Women's March in D.C., the big one, mm. <laughs> in January 2017 with my wife and daughter. And while they were marching, I was marching also, but I brought a camera. And I did a number of works with footage from that day that tried to kind of capture the I would call it the positive energy. I'd been to, obviously, protests before that, and there was something unique about the Women's March and how positive and nonviolent it was. And the work in this exhibition is a small, abstract close-up of just people walking by. And one of the things that it does is uh, you see pink hats go by, and that's one of the main cues to tell you what it is that you're looking at because it's so abstract. Why did you want to create this film with low resolution? There's something about low resolution by eliminating the details. You know, in that work in particular, in the Women's March, you see people go by and you can tell what it is, again, because of the pink hats. And you don't need the faces of the people to know what's going on and the, and the ambience of the, of the environment. And so it, it's just a different way of looking, looking at things in low resolution. You don't pay attention to details because you don't have them. Hmm. Some of your well-known installations are the LED matrix works. One in particular was your transmitted in light installation at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Would you explain one of your transmitted in light installations and explain its appearance and how it works? So to create these works, I start out with a regular video image. Then I reduce them, and then I take that information and I put drive LEDs, color LEDs, with that information, with the 350 pixels of information. And I usually leave the sides open. So they have a screen in front of them, but I leave the sides open so that you can see the LEDs projecting onto the screens, which makes you aware of the process 
that you're looking at. I guess this would relate back to what you were saying about why you like low resolution and that faces are eliminated. It it just reduces images to essentials. What happens when a work is successful and you're in front of it is the analytical part of your brain as you're looking at it kind of shuts off because you can't tell who the person is. There are no edges to look at. You can't even usually tell what gender they are. And so you're, it, the information just kind of flows into you, bypassing the analytical parts of your brain. So I see that as more primal, kind of more instant, and as you call it, and kind of an essence. Jim, I think what this reminds me of is your version of Picasso boiling down form to just a few lines or uh, rendering figures in such an abstract way that they are no longer figures. Am I overthinking it? Um, no, I think that they, they were experimenting also, I assume. But one of the things abstract expressionists, if I'm not mistaken and I'm no expert, were trying to do is to express their unconscious. Yes. But that doesn't necessarily communicate to the viewer's unconscious. They're trying to express their own. And so for these works... I'm trying to communicate, if you will, to the viewer's unconscious by doing what I mentioned earlier, by bypassing the analytical parts of perception and cognition. Which is reality. You're, you're blurring faces. Yeah, or yeah. Making I'm them blurring edges. I'm blurring everything. In some of the works, all you see is a moving figure. And one of the things that happens in these works that is interesting, again, I didn't know this ahead of time, is the only reason you're able to perceive them is because they're moving. The movement becomes very important in recognizing what the images are. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. My guests are the multidisciplinary artist Jim Campbell and Coded Realities curator Nicole Lample. Alan Rath, his works are featured in this exhibition as well. Sadly, he passed away just two years ago. He was only 60. What was Alan Rath's contribution to kinetic sculpture creation? Alan did a number of things before other people. And the most important one I think that he did, and certainly most important for me, is when he started making work in the mid-80s, most of video art at the time was kind of self-referential and it was very political. It was about media. It was about TV. And even Nam Junpei, for instance, who is a very obviously well-known video artist for the time, was very interested in TV as part of culture and using video to respond to TV as part of culture. Whereas Alan kind of stripped all that off early on. And he said, I'm interested in sculpture. 
and I'm interested in using video in my sculpture. So, for example, he would take the, his uh, TV tubes out of the boxes that they were in. So there was no longer a reference to Sony or Samsung or any of the other manufacturers. It wasn't about that. It was about using these images and these CRTs as part of sculpture. So he kind of stepped away from video art as being a political comment. And I think that was really, for me, that was a really important. And that's one of the reasons, honestly, that when I saw his work, I said, wow, this is really taking it in a different direction. And that's why I followed. <laughs> Rath's mechanical sculptures feature uncanny, lifelike characteristics. His positively has ostrich feathers, aluminum fiberglass, and custom electronics and motors to make it move. Nicole, do you want to describe the appearance of this piece further and for either of you to explain how the movements imitate life or convey the idea that the sculpture is alive? Sure. So in this piece, positively, it's got these pretty flamboyantly pink ostrich feathers. It's a very tall sculpture, and each of the feathers is on either side, almost like arms. This was part of a, a newer series that, or at least relatively new, that we showcased when I worked at Hosfeld Gallery. We showed all of these sculptures that were kinetic and incorporated feathers, and he had a lot of inspiration from dance of various sorts as well as music but this one in particular the way in which it moves it's it's activated by the presence of somebody there's a, a motion detector but it doesn't interact the way some people like to think it does when they start making movements in front of it and thinking that it interacts with them or responds to them in some way but this one it almost comes across in my opinion just almost flirtatious or coquettish in its rhythmic movements with these really pink feathers. And when the feathers sort of quiver, it looks like it's trying to tickle you. Um, a lot of people are very tempted to, to jump right past the, the ropes and stand in the middle of it because there's a certain point where it kind of the feathers close in on each other and it looks like it's about to give a hug. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Luckily, nobody's done it yet, but I, I have seen people tempted. <laughs> do you have to put out signage saying, please do not hug this sculpture? <laughs> it says, do not touch. And we've got stanchions up. Everybody has respected that, that signage thus far. But what I think is so interesting about his feather pieces in particular is the way in which these sculptures move in these human-like ways and can almost be assigned gender, like this particular piece feels very feminine and almost sort of flirtatious in some way, like recalling what a burlesque performance with feathers would be like. And what's particularly interesting is he leaves all of the electronics and wiring exposed purposefully so that, you know, at the end of the day, you still know that it is indeed a machine. And he's not trying to hide the fact that it's a machine, but rather draw attention to the fact that you're building a connection and assigning a personality to something electronic and something that's just a machine. In addition to Alan Rath and Jim's works, 
Would you mention a few of the other artists whose works are featured in this exhibition and just briefly describe their works? So we also have the work of Lori Frick, an Austin-based artist. Her pieces are actually the only static pieces of the show that don't plug into the wall in any capacity. She did a couple of pieces that are about DNA sequencing and visualizing that. Her work is really overall about data visualization and compressing a lot of data into something more understandable and comprehensible, you know, from an overwhelming amount of information. And she's got these really amazing pieces that serve as like tracking her time as well as tracking her sleep. So she's using technology in order to track all of this personal uh, information. Then we've got Brian Alexander, who did a couple of pieces that are kind of about the fragility of memory and basically focusing on the unseen and unheard and just how technology can aid or in many instances impair our experiences. We've got Owen Mikatir, who has a very popular piece in the show. It's the first piece you encounter when you walk into the space. And it's made out of a, a flip dot matrix, which is a technology used historically on, on bus signs and things like that, although um, everything's gone digital now. But it's a fairly simple technology with little plastic circles that flip back and forth between black and white. But what's so great about this piece is that it's interactive. There's a, um, a depth sensing camera attached to the bottom. So when people come in, they'll suddenly see their silhouette appear and they can interact with it and move around and the flip dot will reflect those movements. And then just the last one we've got is William Pappenheimer. We have an augmented reality piece by him where when you pick up the iPad, it paints all of your surroundings. Oh, wow. I'm more and more intrigued with the title and unpacking coded realities. What do you hope viewers take away from experiencing this show? What I'm hoping to show is the variety of work that you can create, even if you think maybe you're, you're not an artist. Um, I would love for, you know, a future Jim Campbell to, to walk in here and, and get inspired by um, the pieces here. And I think also just challenging what people define as art. These are, you know, if you ask the average person what kind of art they'd want to see, it's unlikely they would say, oh, a robot with feathers. Um, so I think it really pushes the boundaries of, of what's accepted as traditional art forms. It takes a lot of, of the work off the wall, as well as it makes it really engaging and interactive. There was a, a story of one, of one of our frequent visitors was coming with his kids and he said, oh, we're going to go see some art. And the kids were like, oh, <laughs> really? I hate art. That's so boring, you know, as kids are, are want to do. But as soon as they got there, they first saw the kinetic piece by Owen McAteer, then they saw the feather piece and they were just enamored and had completely changed their, their opinion by the end. So I think that to me is certainly um, a sign of success of this exhibit and what I'd like to see. Jim, as one who began your career as a scientist, 
Do you have a desire that people do not categorize left brain, right brain, but see the steam instead of stem in life? <laughs> it's not something I've really thought about that much, but yes, I, I think that would be a part of my work for sure. One of the things that happens with some of my work is it has a certain kind of electronic magic to it. If that's all it is, then for me, the work is a failure. So it needs to go beyond that. And people need to get something more from it other than its hidden electronics. And so it's the overall experience of bringing all those things together, I think, that makes a successful work. Multidisciplinary artist Jim Campbell with Nicole Lample, director, curator at Reeves House Visual Arts Center. Coded Realities, Art and Technology is on view at Reeves House Gallery in Woodstock through April 17th. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. WABE's business and technology reporter, Emil Moffat, has taken on a new challenge as of late. He launched a podcast last month called TechCast, which aims to help listeners understand how technology relates to everyday lives. Recently, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes and Emil were discussing the intersections of art and technology, and Emil shared that his latest TechCast episode is all about NFTs. What is an NFT? Well, Emil began his conversation with Kim by explaining just that. It stands for non-fungible token, and we've heard a lot of people describe this as a digital certificate of authenticity, if you will. A lot of the early adoption has actually been in the art world, be it visual arts or music. And when you think about those two things, um, they're kind of hard to commodify in the digital space because they can easily be replicated. Uh, If you remember back to the late 90s or early 2000s with music file sharing, and we see it with digital photographs that are easily copied and pasted and and reposted sometimes on the web without permission or credit. Um, And so this image or song is a tangible thing and something that you can see and hear. Uh, And artists are minting NFTs, that's the term for creating an NFT, And they're being sold through these online marketplaces, and that's where buyers can use cryptocurrencies to purchase these NFTs. Uh, But beyond just the buying and selling, there's actually some interesting technology behind them. Uh, Ben Kaczynski is a professor at Emory's Goisetta School of Business, and he teaches about NFTs and cryptocurrency. With the use of blockchain technologies and immutable records that allow us to label something uh, as unique in a recognizable fashion, I can take that artifact, that image, that piece of music that is uh, eminently exchangeable and make it unique and identifiable and therefore possibly more valuable. 
And that blockchain technology that allows that trail of ownership is something that cannot be duplicated, and that's relatively new technology. And so that's what you're really getting when you buy an NFT is this digital certificate that this is a proof of ownership, although we should note, Kim, that you're not actually owning the right to duplicate or license uh, that image or song any further. Yeah, so it's just that one actual instance of it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so why do you think NFTs have become so big in the art world, and who exactly is using them? Uh, For that, we called up an Atlanta artist, Greg Mike, to get his take. My style, I would say, is uh, kind of pop art, um, street art, contemporary art, a lot of bright bright colors, uh, bold line work, um, draw a lot of inspiration from old school retro cartoons. So Greg Mike, a year ago at this time, was launching his first NFT collection, and he was kind of an early adopter. Yeah, it was it was crazy because like as soon as that drop happened, it was like the the DMs and Instagram, Twitter, everything else just exploded with everyone like, "Hey, can I pick your brain?" And uh, yeah, <laughs> it was a little overwhelming at the time, but I'm glad I could like you know push that knowledge forward and help you know onboard folks. I think it's important. With, with what we're doing is to make sure that we can help other people understand it. Because it is daunting, you know? And so he thinks of NFTs as a way to commodify digital artwork. And he says that's important for artists of his generation, uh, ones who grew up creating art on a computer instead of with a pen and paper or paint on canvas. All my work is created digitally first. So once that all clicked and I started realizing that like the digital files that I'm actually creating are actually the originals. And my paintings that I'm painting, whether that's a mural or, or a painting in the studios, almost a replica. I mean, it's still an original in its own sense, but there is some value in the digital piece of it. I love that Greg Mike mentioned murals, since this is one area where we're hearing that NFTs could really come in handy for artists because murals, they may last a few weeks or months or years, but eventually they're going to be painted over. Yeah, it could be very useful to have some sort of permanent element to mural artwork, because when you think about it, what is a mural? It's the actual paint on the wall. And after that's gone, what do you have left? And the possibilities with NFTs just seem so abundant. Uh, Another could be what's called the the metaverse, uh, this space that blends real life and augmented reality. And in fact, Greg Mike says this is how he approaches some of his artwork these days. You know, the whole time I'm creating now, I'm thinking about like, how can this be more than just like a still image on a wall, right? Like, or how can this painting come to life? You know, can this painting that I, I'm hanging in the gallery have a, an AR component so that, you know, you pull it up on your phone and the characters move and their eyes look around. And it's that enhanced experience uh, that artists see as yet another opportunity to earn extra money through their artwork. Uh, Also using the blockchain technology, there's the ability to create what's called a smart contract. That means that if your NFT is sold down the road by uh, a third party, you could actually automatically get a percentage of that sale. Uh, But many artists have run into issues with people taking their artwork and minting unauthorized NFTs. And the marketplaces that uh, use for NFTs can be unregulated. So some artists have had to be really diligent to make sure that their images or music, their creations aren't being stolen. And that can mean hours and yeah, that can mean hours and hours of monitoring these marketplaces, uh, sending cease and desist letters, even hiring lawyers to protect their copyrights. And so there's also this issue of equity. You know, can artists from all backgrounds benefit from NFTs 
or will it only be the artists who have the resources to spend this time and money? Really good point. Yeah, and so Ashley France uh, is a consultant in Atlanta. We called her up recently. She advises companies and artists getting into the NFT space. And she says black and brown artists can actually benefit by marketing directly to customers. It allows artists to be able to raise capital and get funding for things without having to get a loan, without always having to use all of their personal income or without having to really have a label. Um, Some of the big um, black artists in the NFT space, Black Dave and Latasha and Iman, um, they're really, really good examples of small independent artists that have been able to sell out NFT projects and make a lot of money that they can utilize for their projects through NFTs. Really interesting. All right, so there's a lot of concerns about the environmental impact of NFTs and blockchain. The musician Brian Eno wrote an opinion piece recently that completely picked apart NFTs, saying it isn't about art, it's just another way of making money that requires more energy, more electricity, and more fossil fuels to be burned. Yeah, I put that question to Professor Kaczynski at Emory, and he said that the images or songs associated with NFTs, those aren't really the problem. That's no different from the data that's uploaded every day online. Uh, You know, servers can handle those. But he says what is significant is the actual blockchain technology. It's very energy intensive. It's kind of always solving these math problems to maintain that chain part of the blockchain. Um, And so it's something that people might not actually notice if they're shopping in an NFT marketplace. This will be more underneath rather than at the front end of it. So it it is an issue that is uh, definitely associated with today's practices, but we need to revisit those practices. Now, one thing that we should note is that not all NFT marketplaces and blockchain technology have the same environmental impact. Some use less energy, some use more So artists and buyers who are concerned about their footprint uh, do have some options on what they choose to use if they want to get involved in this space. There are actually some online carbon calculators that will let you see how much energy is used, and we'll link to that on the City Lights page at our website, wabe.org. All right, Emil, so what can you tell us about the future of NFTs? Well, Professor Kaczynski says he thinks uh, about NFTs kind of like uh, what ride-sharing has done uh, to our lives. We kind of take that for granted now. If you need a Lyft or an Uber, you take out your phone, you push one button, and uh, suddenly a driver shows up. He knows where you are, and and the driver can get there uh, almost instantaneously because of technology. We could not do an Uber 20 years ago, but now we can because the complexity that is needed for an Uber is ready for us. And that's what's happened. That's what's forming now. The infrastructure that will serve us to do new kinds of, of things and new kinds of uh, actions and commerce and society. And some of those kind of possible future uses for this kind of blockchain technology could be maybe digital tickets to an event. Um, Ashley France says one of the more creative uses she's seen for NFTs has been as kind of a membership card. So whether that be behind the scenes content, meetups, um, VIP, in-person events, etc. And then once you have utilized this membership or maybe you move, you're able to sell it and somebody else will have access to it. This is just all such great information. But I got to tell you, it still seems like every day we're hearing stories about people paying outrageous amounts of money for NFTs. It's hard to believe that they're really this valuable. 
Yeah, and, and Professor Kaczynski says you really have to think of this uh, almost like investing in a startup. It's something that could down the road pay off handsomely one day, uh, but it also could not. We've got to be careful uh, that what we're investing in aligns with our timeline of relevance. That what is it's meaningful to you at this time, and will it be meaningful in the future? And and so people have to take a, a long horizon, even in dealing with a short horizon transaction. And so he says it really depends on how the technology evolves. NFTs could prove to be a big deal in the art and music world but they could also kind of fade away. Uh, but he does think that the technology behind them will likely be here to stay. Emil Moffat, host of WABE's TechCast, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. Emil's latest episode does a deep dive into NFTs and can be found on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., chamber pop duo Takenobu share details on their upcoming Sounds Like ATL performance at City Winery. Plus, author Kim Fay tells us why her latest book, Love and Saffron, is a novel of friendship, food, and love. Then, some Atlanta roller derby history with skaters Gucci Mame and Switchblade Susie. City Light's senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. You can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.